Plus. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Marvin Gaye, the prince of Motown who broke free from the Hitsville assembly line to become his own artist, the conscious black poet who sang the struggle of the 70s, the preacher's son who called sex a sacrament and sounded like he was headed to church even as he slipped between silk sheets. But this isn't about Marvin Gaye. This is about Janice Gaye, the girl he seduced long before they met the child bride who grew to adulthood under her husband's control, but escaped sharing his ugly fate, who would one day find herself in court, defending his legacy from a song about exactly the kind of abuse they both suffered and that he visited on her. This story is about a girl. first time she sees him, she's eight years old and he's a dream, glowing in high contrast on a black and white TV. The most beautiful man she's ever seen, grooving on American bandstand, singing out of the TV's little speaker to her, how sweet it is to be loved by you. Janice Williams wants to be loved by him. She's just a little girl in a foster home. But the glittering music industry never seems too far away from Mama Ruth's house, just off Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles. Her real mother is a glamorous white woman named Barbie, but she takes too many drugs to look after a little girl. That's why Barbie pays Mama Ruth to look after Janice instead. She's Mama Ruth's favorite because of her light skin and good hair. Mama Ruth makes sure she gets piano and ballet lessons. But she also touches Janice in places she's not supposed to, in ways that make Janice feel nasty. 
Other times, she makes up reasons to punish Janice and beats her until she's bruised. So Janice turns on the TV and loses herself watching Marvin Gaye. She listens to his voice, and she hears intelligence, gentleness, an understanding of pain and a promise that pain can end. Someday she'll meet Marvin, and he'll fall in love with her, she tells herself. It's her dream. She tells herself it will come true. When she's 14, Janice announces that she's going to live with Barbie. Janice is grown now. She doesn't need looking after. She has a woman's shape and Mama Ruth won't be touching her again. Barbie's doing better. She has an office job working for a fancy lawyer, and she's moving in a world full of hip Hollywood artists. She's friends with Donald Sutherland's wife and Burt Lancaster's daughter. Diana Ross lives around the corner. In this world, cocaine lines glisten on mirrored tables. Her mom's boss throws a party at his mansion, high above the smog of L.A., and Janice swims topless in the turquoise pool, deliciously aware that she's drawing every man's eye. But when her mom's boss puts his tongue in her mouth, Janice tells Barbie she wants to go home. On the drive home, her mother switches on the radio, and Marvin is singing. It's a track from his latest album, What's Going On. He's not singing about love anymore. This is an album about war and poverty and picket lines. Janice doesn't listen to the words. She just gets lost in his voice. She can hear anger there, and it comforts her. She's 16 when she hears one of her mother's hip friends say he knows Marvin Gaye. I'm producing his new album, the friend says. Oh, sure, Janice tells him. I don't believe you. Would you believe me if I got Marvin Gaye to come over here to meet you and your mom? The friend asks. He's a music producer by the name of Ed Townsend. Maybe you could get him to come sing at the baby's 17th birthday party, Barbie suggests. So on her 17th birthday, Janice waits with all of her friends for Marvin Gaye to arrive at her house. Her mother decorates a cake and they play Marvin's record. Hours go by. He never shows. The humiliation of this disappointment is alleviated only a week later when Ed makes it up to her by inviting Janice and her mother to the studio where Marvin is recording. This is the real deal. Janice dresses more carefully than she ever has in her life. A week into her 17th year, and she has the chance to impress the man she's been dreaming about since she was eight years old. Gold hoop earrings, platform boots, skin-tight bell-bottoms. She borrows a fox fur coat from another friend of her mom and puts her hair in braids. The album he's working on with Ed Townsend will be called Let's Get It On. It couldn't be more different from the conscious social criticism of his last album, What's Going On. Critics will call it a masterpiece of sensuality, a carnal feast, a paean to the joys of fucking. As Janice walks into the studio, she can hear Marvin right away. He's crooning into the mic, his voice like wet satin, moaning, keening, telling her that giving herself to him can never be wrong if the love is true. That voice, the one she's listened to for years, is emanating from the man in the recording booth who is, yes, just as beautiful in real life as he is on the album cover. 
he looks like he's already in sexual ecstasy or even in the throes of something more spiritual, something sanctified. Janice sinks down onto the studio couch and into the clouds of pot smoke that fill the room. She can't take her eyes off him, the curve of his lips, the flare of his nostrils. Their eyes meet through the glass of the recording booth. She doesn't know it, but he's changing the song as he sings. He's already singing it to her. At the end of the night, he takes her hand in his and tells her he hopes they'll meet again. In the car ride back, Janice screams, bouncing up and down in the car seat. She met Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye held her hand. Her mother tells her to stop screaming. I can't, Janice screams. Tell me I'll see him again. Tell me it's possible. Anything is possible, but not everything is right. Back at the studio, Marvin tells Ed he has never seen a finer woman. He says that Janice is the figure out of his fantasy, the muse he's seen in his dreams. There's a song he's been struggling with, If I Should Die Tonight. In it, the singer tells a woman he won't die blue because he's known her. He hasn't been able to nail it, he's complained to Ed, because he's never felt that way. Now he asks Ed to cue it up. He's seen Janice and everything is different. I can sing this son of a bitch now, he says. He's twice her age. He's married. He has a child. None of that is going to matter. He has to have her. Marvin calls the next day. He does want to see her again. Ed comes along on their first date. That night, Marvin is a gentleman. She watches him record more songs, and then, since she has school the next day, he drives her home by 10. He tells her it's beautiful to be with her, and he kisses her on the forehead. For the second date, they ditch their chaperone. Marvin takes her out to a restaurant where he bribes the waiter to bring her apricot sours and talks to her about taking mushrooms in the desert, about the nature of God and reality. He says he's been searching for a woman who can inspire him. He looks into her eyes. I'm feeling something with you, something strong. In the car on the way back, he plays her a tape of If I Should Die Tonight. He tells her he wrote the song for her. At the door, he kisses her deeply. They slip inside the apartment. Barbie is asleep. The door to her bedroom is closed. In the living room, Marvin sits down in an easy chair and spreads his legs. He gestures to the carpet in front of him. Janice understands what he's asking, and she wants to give him what he wants. She wants to give him everything. Afterwards, he tells her he wants to call her Jan. Not Janice. She seems more like a Jan. Would that be all right with her? Her heart is pounding. Yes, Jan says. It doesn't matter that he's 17 years older than her. After all, his wife is 17 years older than him. It's not a happy relationship, he tells her. Anna is the older sister of Barry Gordy, the music executive who founded Motown Records. Marvin is struggling to get away from Anna and from Barry both. He had barely been 20 when he started recording for Barry and dating Anna. Between the two of them, they had molded him as a man and as a musician. It had been a struggle when he began to rebel against the vision Anna and Barry had for his career and for his voice. 
Now Anna is back in Detroit, and he's still under contract to Barry, but he's living on his own in a one-bedroom in Culver City. It doesn't take long before he moves Jan in with him. And not long after that, he begs Jan to drop out of school. He doesn't like having to compete with those high school boys, he tells her. And besides, there's nothing she needs to know that he can't teach her. He reads Shakespeare, Carlos Castaneda, Edgar Case. He's educated, erudite. They make love constantly. Sex with him becomes the main event of her daily life. The intelligence and gentleness she heard in his voice all those years, she experiences now in his touch, in his words. Later, she will realize the pain she heard in his voice is real too. Let's Get It On is released in August 1973. Jan and Marvin had been together barely six months. It's immediately a monster hit. For Marvin, it's a catastrophe. He is, she's beginning to learn, deeply ambivalent about show business. He loves music but hates to perform. He craves praise but shuns press. His ego drives him, but whenever he succeeds, it feels hollow. He feels like he's turning a trick, selling himself. He thrives on publicity and feels dirty for seeking it. It's a pattern in his life that would also pervade their relationship. As Let's Get It On climbs the charts, he retreats. He and Jan move out to a cabin in the canyons, far from the music execs, tour managers, fans, and reporters. By the time they come back, she's pregnant. He sends her to stay with his family while he embarks on the world tour his managers have finally strong-armed him into. As soon as she walks into the gay family homestead in D.C., she knows something is off. His mother is quiet and polite. His father is overbearing and erratic. He's wearing curlers and pantyhose. Marvin has rarely talked to her about his childhood, but over the next few weeks, his brother Frankie fills her in. He tells her that Marvin adores his mother and despises his father, a singer and Pentecostal preacher whose religious views are both strict and strange. Marvin Sr. preached to his children that rock and roll was evil and that sex was sin, but he privately received women from the church in his bedroom and publicly went out dressed in his wife's clothes. Their father's proclivity for cross-dressing turned his surname, Gay, into a schoolyard taunt his sons had to endure. Marvin would later add an E at the end to soften the implications. It wasn't as if they could retort that their father was actually a cross-dressing heterosexual adulterer. But those blows to his pride weren't the worst injuries Marvin sustained from his father. When an uncle molested him, Marvin Sr. ignored it. And when Marvin confronted his father about his hypocrisy, he beat Marvin so badly it left raw welts on his back. These stories are so much worse, Jan thinks, than her experiences with Mama Ruth. Her suffering is nothing compared to Marvin's. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy 
happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. Jan is 18 when she gives birth to their daughter, Nona, whom they call Pi. She's 19 when she gives birth to their son, Frankie, whom they call Bubby. With Jan as his muse, Marvin is recording a new album. He pours all his lust for her, his infatuation, his desire into those recordings. Critics will write that the album, I Want You, is reflection of his obsession with her, a work of romantic and erotic tribute. At the climax of one track, he even moans her full name, Janice, Janice. He is locked in an expensive and bitter divorce battle with Anna, and he has built a studio of his own, refusing to record under Motown's roof. They already have a house in Hidden Hills, but he outfits the recording studio as a Playboy-style second residence equipped with every luxury, including a jacuzzi and a waterbed. They throw star-spangled parties there, full of laughter and music and cocaine. He's tender with the children, charming with guests. Outside the studio, L.A. sex workers ply their trade on Sunset Boulevard. Sometimes, Marvin takes her cruising to pick up a working girl. He likes it when Jan watches another woman pleasure him. He likes it even better when he can imagine another man servicing Jan. The idea excites and angers him in turn. It's as if his greatest desire and his worst fear are inextricably entangled. One of the men he imagines her with is a young singer named Frankie Beverly. Marvin is helping Beverly with his career. He admires the young man's talent. But at the same time, he keeps trying to engineer an encounter between him and Jan. You know you want him, he tells her. She protests that she doesn't. He's your man, he says. When Beverly is due in town for a joint concert with Marvin, Marvin withdraws from Jan. He won't touch her. He belittles her appearance, the weight she gained through her pregnancies, the stretch marks on her belly. He tells her she's lost her youth. She's 20 years old. Then, when she's miserable with loneliness and insecurity, he finds a reason for her and Beverly to be alone. He books them adjoining rooms in a hotel, telling her he wants to be alone in their home to concentrate on his music. A few hours after she arrives at the hotel, Marvin bursts into her room, hoping to find them in flagrante. She can't tell if Marvin is enraged or disappointed when she finds them talking, fully clothed. A few weeks later, the night of the concert, Marvin is acting strange, manic and jumpy. He's high out of his mind when they get into the limo to go to the venue and he tells the driver to make the half-hour trip in 10 minutes. At his urging, the limo races faster and faster, swerving in and out of traffic. And then it crashes. Jan regains consciousness as she's being carried from the car by rescue workers. She doesn't know it yet, but the driver is dead. 
Marvin is unharmed, and he's walking by her side. You have to stay alive, baby. You can't go. I want to marry you. I want you to be my wife. Do you hear me? Please, Jan, please say yes. Please marry me. They do marry, in fact. It's 1977. Marvin has finally divorced Anna, settling the question of alimony by agreeing to turn over the proceeds of one album to her. At first, he plans to record something terrible, but despite himself, creates an intricate, tender, and bitter musical portrait of their relationship. The album is called Here, My Dear, after the final words he plans to say to Anna when he turns the album over and walks away. His wedding to Jan is a quiet affair, just them, the children, and a judge. Later, when she looks back on the years of their marriage, she'll remember it as a doomed chase across oceans and continents, trying to keep their love alive in the shadow of Marvin's compulsive nature. Will they love each other more in New Orleans? Will they treat each other better in London or Paris? Will Hawaii bring them peace? They love each other in New Orleans, in London, in Paris. They fight in all those places too. They even fight in the paradise of Hawaii, where Marvin tries to get her to sleep with a local college student. Aren't you dreaming of having that hunk on top of you, he asks. I know you're insatiable. Stop these games, she begs. You love these games, you know you do. That sounds like lyrics to a song, she tells him. Not real life. As always, the fight gives way to an interlude of bliss. The scripture says the perfect love casts out all fear, he tells her a few weeks later as they stroll on the beach. He takes her hand. That's the precise moment when they run into Frankie Beverly again. She almost can't believe it when she sees him walking toward them across the sand. Marvin happens to have a concert on one of the other islands that night. He asks Beverly if he can look after Jan while he's away. Sure, says Beverly. That night, Jan breaks down and does what Marvin has told her she'd do all along. She sleeps with Frankie Beverly. When Marvin browbeats her into confessing, he's furious that his most forbidden fantasy has been realized. Maybe he wants you, he tells her, but no one else does. Not the way you look these days. But it's not over. His next target is Teddy Pendergrass another up-and-coming soul singer. He worries that Teddy will steal his fan base. Jan tries to reassure him that his fans are loyal, but he dismisses her. They're no more loyal than you. It won't be long before you fuck up. Teddy thinks I'm weak, and that means he'll be coming after you. Later, after she starts sleeping with Teddy Pendergrass, he tells her that after one of his shows, Marvin sent him a dozen red dead roses. He's obsessed with you, she'll tell Teddy. No, he's obsessed with you, Teddy will say. He'll always be obsessed with you. She's starting to think that's true. Marvin's creativity is being subsumed by his jealousy and deviance, his drug use and depression. Their fights turn physical. Finally, there is a night when Marvin puts a kitchen knife to her throat. I've loved you too much, Marvin says. This love is killing me. I beg you to provoke me. Provoke me right now so I could take us both out of our misery. It's the first time she takes the kids and leaves him. It won't be the last. How can you love someone who relishes pain? How can you inspire someone who thrives on chaos? The years spiral downward. Ed Townsend, who first introduced her to Marvin, introduces her to the second love of her life, the crackpipe. 
every decision she makes from then on will be through the fog of that addiction. Her addiction to Marvin has settled into a terrible cycle. They fight. She leaves with the kids. They reconcile. They try to be a family. He turns mean and depressive. They fight. A wheel of karma spinning out of control. At one point, he steals Bubby away with him without telling her and goes to live in London. Jan is furious. That separation lasts longer than most. But then there's a call in the middle of the night, a soft, familiar voice with perfect diction asking her to try again. It doesn't matter that he's shacked up in London with a Dutch groupie named Eugenie. It doesn't matter that she hasn't seen her son in so long. He's developed a British accent. She crosses the ocean for him. Nothing matters but this holy now, Marvin tells her when they are reunited. In this precious now, we are in perfect harmony. And despite all she's seen, all she suffered, she still believes him. It's the summer of 1981, but now won't stay now. Just after Christmas, she's on her way back to L.A. without him. By spring of 1982, they're divorced. Summer 1982, and she's living with him again in Belgium. The cycle keeps repeating. Nothing can keep her away from him for long. In 1983, Marvin embarks on a five-month tour behind his latest album. They part, this time on good terms. He comes to say goodbye to her and the children, and there is a half hour spent at a park, joking and singing, that she will always treasure. There's also a shared vial of crack. But then he is gone, and she starts getting phone calls from him that trouble her. Marvin sounds paranoid in a way that is extreme even for him. I know God led you to me, Jan, but the devil led me away. The devil also got into you. But if we pray, if we believe, God will prevail. At other times, he starts telling friends that Jan is trying to kill him. He tells people he's hiring a lawyer to investigate a poisoning attempt. He becomes convinced that there is a killer stalking him in every city. He buys guns. On stage, he ends each night by taking off all his clothes and standing there in his underpants. I expose myself because the fans demand it, he tells Jan when she meets up with him on a stop in New York. I offer myself up for slaughter. I am the sacrificial lamb. If their pleasure requires my destruction, so be it. Then he tells her he knows she's plotting his destruction too. Things aren't going much better for Jan. She's broke. She's freebasing. She's cleaning homes for money and cocaine. She and Marvin are both too strung out too crazy to be any comfort to each other. When the tour ends, there's nowhere for Marvin to go. Jan hears he's living with Anna again, but with his sister. Then she hears he's moved back home to live with his parents, with his father. On April 1st, 1984, Marvin finally meets the killer he has feared. People will say Marvin himself gave his father the gun for protection. Jan doesn't know if it's true. But she knows Marvin fought with his father, just as he had when he was a child. And she knows that Marvin's father, his tormentor, the man whose love he never stopped longing for, shot him dead. It takes a long time for Jan to crawl out from under the burden of addiction. She doesn't put down the crack pipe for years after Marvin's death, but she does make it. There comes a time when her mind is clear, when the pain fades. She survives the 80s, then the 90s, even the aughts, 
She survives breast cancer. In 2010, she leaves L.A. with her son and her daughter and her grandson and settles in Rhode Island, where her grandson can go to a good private school. They're a tiny family in a tiny state. They're happy. One day, she hears a song that sounds familiar. One of Marvin's, she thinks. It's a song she knows well. Got to give it up. His one foray into disco. And she knows it because it's the only time Marvin ever let her sing back up for him. She begged him many times. She had a good voice and she wanted to use it. But that was the only time he ever entertained the idea. And her voice is on the recording. But it's not Got to Give It Up. It's another song by Robin Thicke and Pharrell called Blurred Lines. Over the next five years, Jan and her children fight a copyright battle in court. It's Jan who pushes the hardest. She knows in her heart that Marvin would fight for his music. She tells her lawyer that she believes Marvin is watching over her. She still talks to him, all the time, out loud. She believes he answers, in signs and in music. Even now, she only has to play his songs to feel the way it felt to be with him, in the good times when he was a mellow philosopher prince and she his closest companion. Sometimes she'll hear one of his songs when she least expects it, and a lyric will jump out at her, a snatch of language that clarifies something she's pondering or struggling with. That's when she knows his spirit is near. Throughout the court battle, she never talks about blurred lines itself, about the lyrics so close to the things Marvin said when he was in the throes of sexual anguish. You know you want it. She heard that from him so many times. Perhaps it's unbearable to hear those words in a song that so closely resembles one of his. In 2018, a judge sides with Jan and her family. I'm happy, she tells reporters. And she is. Free of the poisonous combination of her husband and the drugs, the collusion to bury her sense of self deep underground, Janice finally grasps the stunning breadth of Marvin's mental and emotional torment. From her now safely removed vantage, she can recognize his behavior as classic manic depression, laced with psychosexual chaos that he could never himself grasp. And here, in this place of hard-earned peace, she finds compassion and gives herself a gift. She forgives Marvin Gaye and herself for getting lost in him. Marvin Gaye's cool exterior, his good looks and charisma, his unparalleled smooth voice and delivery, his social consciousness and sense of sonic adventure have made him an idol for the ages. His tragic and senseless death immortalized him for generations of fans and has largely caused his harrowing interior life to remain in the shadows. His timeless music is part of the fabric of our popular culture. 47 years beyond him. But this isn't about Marvin Gaye. This is about Jan Gaye, the young beauty mistreated by the world, who has now lived long enough to tell her own story, who has found a contentment that Marvin never could, because she survived. This is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. 
Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and additional writing by Scott Janovitz. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com.